uh, following it that, that were not much uh, different. So, and in fact, it also, uh, it also makes a difference which one of the London Baptist Confessions you're reading. Are you reading the original that says the general equity of the judicials is of moral use only? Or are you reading the later edition that changed it to say they're of modern use only? which opens the door wide open to the same theonomic view as the Westminster Confession. And that just so happens to be the, the version that got picked up by Charles Spurgeon when he did his popularized version. He said it's of modern use, not merely moral use, but modern use. And that was the version that got published when J.D. Hall published his version. And I can make the case that that opens the door to theonomy just as easily. But nevertheless, the confession is not our standard. In the same way that when you want to throw the confession in my face, I come back and say, well, why don't you accept its view of baptism? Well, because I think Scripture teaches otherwise. Well, even if I thought the confession was teaching contrary to me, I would simply say, I think the confession, I think the Scripture teaches otherwise. Because that's what matters. What matters is why Paul went to the judicial laws, why Paul said it applies to unbelievers. Why Hebrews says that every transgression is just. Why God calls out and says every one of his judgments is just. In Psalm 19, God makes the same point about his judgments. Psalm 19, verse, uh, beginning in verse 11. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, back up, beginning in verse uh, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, revising, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, not just part of them, all of them. And the word rules in the Hebrew is the word mishpatim. The same word is used at the head of the book of the law, which may have not been written on stone, but it's the same word God uses there to say that they're all righteous and just altogether. Exodus 21.1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Same word, the mishpatim. Now, if you want to say they don't endure, you Go talk to God who says they're just and righteous altogether. And you have to show some standard in later scripture why that is the case. Which would mean that to impose them today is not just, uh, you know, some kind of a theological bugaboo, but that it is unjust to do so. And you notice you didn't hear an answer to that question either. Thomas Granger, executed for bestiality, multiple counts. Was that penalty just? I was asked about the laws on adultery. Of course, in our own culture, remember what I talked about yesterday about how far we've become dumbed down and pulled away from God's standards, that if you talk about uh, uh, executing an adulterer, that sounds shocking. And a lot of people reel at that because they think, oh, if we imposed a theonomic society, we'd have to kill every adulterer immediately. Well, I don't think it works quite that way. 
But that is God's standard. And you have to show why that standard is now unjust. And I haven't heard an answer to that question. I'll still be listening for it. Thank you, Joe McDermott. Final rebuttal for this first segment will be J.D. Hall. Got 12 minutes. And uh, after he's done, we're going to be passing out the cards so you can ask the questions before our break. So keep that in mind. Once he's done, we'll be doing that. The floor is yours, J.D. Hall. You have 12 minutes. All right. God's standards or man's standards. I said when I began, I can answer that question definitively. By whose standard? By God's standard. But here's the problem. When you reject definitions as they've typically been defined, we don't end up speaking the same language. When we say God's standard, what does that mean? To my opponent, that means the civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel. What is man's standard? To theonomist, this typically means humanism. This means ungodliness. This means unrighteousness. And yet we see in Peter's own Romans 13, so to speak, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says the same thing, really, that, that Paul says in Romans 13, that the civil magistrate is there to punish the wicked and reward good. And he tells them to submit to what? To every human ordinance, catissus anthropinus, human ordinance, something that has been created by man. I can only imagine now that the is shouting at Peter saying, whose law? By whose law? Well, here's a human ordinance that seems to accompany what God has spoken in the moral law. And so we need to understand that as we look at the concept, the debate of theonomy, words really do make a big difference. Definitions matter. And what, that, uh, what was just presented, the idea, God's law or man's law, God's law being the civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel that we're told was given to them so long as they're in the land, that's God's law and man's law has to be inherently wicked, therefore. Uh, my opponent wrote a book on biblical logic and on page 48, he mentions uh, a logical fallacy called the excluded middle. And then on page 80 of that book, uh, he gives an example of what the excluded middle is. And he gives the example having to choose between something that is natural and something that is supernatural. That's a fallacy. God's law, it has to be the civil code. It can't be the moral law. It can't be human ordinance, as we're told by the apostle, uh, to obey. Now, he gives an example uh, there at the end of his first speech. Someone in the Massachusetts Bay con uh, uh, Colony uh, who had been accused and convicted of buggery with a turkey and other animals. Well, let's look at the laws of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Because after 18 years of them arriving there, it took them 18 years to come up with a legal document uh, to... Uh, to enforce upon the land. The civil magistrate took 18 years. It would have been very easy simply to say, well, it's the civil code. You see, Puritans are sometimes painted as theonomists, and they really weren't. Kidnapping wasn't a capital crime. 
The first offense, you got a warning under that document created at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The second warning, you had to stand on a box that was four feet tall with a sign saying that you'd broken God's law. Is that in the Old Testament? Is that in the Mosaic Civil Code? Is it really? It's not. So we can turn to certain figures in history, but the fact is that the choir, the symphony of theologians have said this is not true. However, though, as my opponent pointed out, after I did, I'll remind you, uh, the scriptures are infallible rule of faith and practice, not confessions, although inconsistency and holding to one's confession should probably be pointed out. He turned to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, and he says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for mothers, excuse me, uh, for murderers, uh, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And he goes through a laundry list of, of uh, sins here. But it wasn't just sins. What my opponent neglected to tell you is that he was going through a laundry list of crimes, not just sins, but crimes. Now, Paul does the same thing, actually. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Here's what uh, Paul says. He gives a list of crimes against God. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such is what some of you were. Does that list of sins sound familiar? And he's going through a list of what is mostly capital crimes. He's referencing the civil code of Israel. And yet his point is that the church should not then say the civil magistrate is obligated to enforce the law of Moses and put these men to death. How does Paul, in the word of God, inspired of the Holy Spirit, use the civil code? He uses it to say, God hates your sin. And yet he's chosen to give you grace through Jesus Christ. That's why when we use the law lawfully today, we realize it is not the state that is Israel, it is the church. And we use it in accordance to general equity. Now, my opponent spoke about general equity. I guess I was the one that broke it up, so let me do that. If you don't know what the term means, it's used by the Westminster Divines basically as universal justice. If you look up the word in the Oxford English Dictionary, it lists several senses, but the, the best one is the one that's used in English jurisprudence. This concept of equity and the definition of the recourse to general principles of justice. Naturalis equitis. The, the natural and moral recourse of justice. Samuel Bolton, Puritan pastor in London, during the time of the Westminster Confession, speaking of general equity, defined it. He said, those judgments which are common and natural are moral and perpetual. William Googe, the uh, uh, member of the Westminster Assembly, he said the general equity that they who communicate unto us on spiritual matters should partake of our temporals and that they who are set apart wholly to attend God's service should live upon that service. It is moral. The Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, Samuel Rutherford, who I said, I am familiar with Rutherford. Rutherford was very clear as to what the judicial law was and how it was to be defined. 
and understood. He said, judicial laws may be judicial and mosaical, and so not obligatory to us, according to the degree and quality of punishment, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the destroying of the city and devoting all therein to a curse. We may not do the like, in like degree of punishment to all, because the slaying of a man, woman, infant, suckling, ox, and sheep, these are temporary things. And listen to this. He says, no man but sees the punishment of theft as a common moral equity. What does general equity mean? Universal justice. We all see that thievery is wrong. That's why Calvin calls it the common law of nations. But then he says, but the manner of degree of punishment is more positive as to punish theft by restoring four oxen for the stealing of one ox does not so oblige all nations. I'd ask my opponent if I stole his car, how many would he want me to return to him? Four? Five? How about identity theft? Let's say I steal something that is... That's, that's theft by duplication. Do I return to him four ideas in exchange for the one I stole? Or five? Nine? No, there is the moral equity. Theft is wrong. How it plays out in that particular place and time is one of those human ordinances that we're told to submit to as the nation or the state, the civil magistrate is serving in its function to be a minister of God. You see, that is what the general equity means. The Puritan, Paul Baines, he says, for the first, we are free from them as ordinances of, to be politically delivered. They bind us as the perpetual equity of God, agreeable to the law of nature and morality is in them. Don't let someone tell you what general equity is and, and what they meant when they produced the document they did that counterbalances and contradicts my opponent's view. They spelled it out very clearly as to what it is. I'm not sure if he mentioned William Perkins or not. It seems like perhaps he did, but I did have a note from William Perkins. He said, therefore, the judicial law of Moses, according to the substance and scope thereof, must be distinguished. Some of them are laws of particular equity, some of common equity. Here's what he says. Judicial laws are of common equity, are as such made according to the law or instinct of nature common to all men, and these in respect of their substance bind the conscience not only of the Jews but also of the Gentiles. Now, is it merely that the law was placed in the Holy of Holies? It doesn't mean anything. It's just where it was placed. There's no real distinction out there in terms of moral and civil law. No, it's the rest of Christianity that's telling, their, telling us there's a distinction. I would ask you, my friends, do you think that thou shalt not murder, steal, covet, commit adultery is written upon the hearts of men? It most certainly is. Do you think in the same way God writes on our heart that if a woman says she's a virgin on, on, and on her, her wedding night finds out differently that we are to take her to her father's porch and stone her to death there? My opponent would say, is it just? Let me tell you what justice is. Here's justice. Yes, it was just. Here's why. The moment you've sinned against God, you deserve death. I'm not going to say, well, these laws are unjust because they're mean. No matter what punishment God would have us dispel on sin, it is less harsh than what he one day will at the judgment. So I don't think it's too harsh. But the notion, which I'm going to get, out, get into uh, in my next speech, is it? really unchanging just because it's just? Because I tell you what, I don't think the penalties for the Mosaic Law are written upon our heart. 
the same way that the moral law is. It's a very real distinction. It exists, and it's not going away anytime soon. Now, he characterized my view um, as being, quote, that I thought or would say, uh, and maybe he was characterizing just the view of those that uh, aren't theonomists, that we think they're just going to kill every adulterer automatically. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not accusing you of that. It's troubling, though, because he said on page 207, or rather 203 of his book on logic, that uh, straw man is a fallacy. That's not what we believe. It's not what we believe at all. But the passage that I presented to you from the church, that can't be done in a neo-Mosaic theocracy. They can't restore someone in sin if the civil magistrate is opposed to the mission of the church, and I submit to you, it is not. Thank you, J.D., and thank you, Joel McDermott, as well. Thank you to both of our debate participants, and thank you, audience. What we're going to do is take five. We're going to be back here about 8 o'clock. Here's what I suggest you do. Hang out, chill out. Please do not approach these men on the stage. If they decide to condescend down to you, that's acceptable. Don't be coming up here. Thank you. Use the restroom. Check out the book table, and if you want to get an early jump on Q&A, Find someone in the front that's uh, like this guy right here and give them your question if you want to do it now. Let's begin segment two. Are you guys excited? You guys have been very well behaved despite what, you know, uh, people might have thought. You guys have been very well behaved. I'm just kidding. No one really thought anything bad. But uh, I think these guys have done all right, too. And um, I'm excited about this next segment. This time, as we come to the resolution, Mosaic civil laws are obligatory for civil governments today. J.D. Hall will be beginning in the negative for 15 minutes. Then Joel McDermott will answer in the affirmative for 15 minutes. Another seven-minute cross-examination. You see how those go. Another final rebuttal, 12 minutes each. Going to take one more final break after that, get any more questions, and then do the Q&A. I am excited, but I'm going to get out of the way. Are you guys ready? All right. With that, Mr. J.D. Hall, you have 15 minutes. The floor is yours. Uh, the error in what is most typically the theonomic apologetic, which we've seen tonight, um, especially so, is found in one basic supposition on their part, that if something is just, it's therefore unchangeable. Therefore, if it was just then, to stone the rebellious uh, child or adolescent uh, or the adulterous woman uh, or someone who had cursed a parent and so on, then it has to be the law of the civil magistrate today, and it needs to be the only law, the only penalty. And anything different must, by definition, be unjust. And this is what is inherently flawed in the theonomic reasoning. Uh, first, though, the theonomic uh, position. Uh, Joel has already demonstrated it tonight, so I won't read to you uh, all of the quotations that I could. But just to uh, tell you that, in case you didn't know, what he's saying is squaring up with what theonomy typically teaches from Theonomy and Christian Ethics, page 466. Uh, Bonson says um, that 
there is no, quote, cancellation of death sentences for those crimes that are specified in the Older Testament. Now, that's not news to most of you, but it is to many young theonomists that I speak to who have said things like, well, I'm a theonomist. I just don't think that the Mosaic Civil Code ought to be applied in terms of penology and stuff. Right. That means, again, you're not a theonomist by definition of the theonomic founders. And so to argue this logically felt supposition that just must mean unchanging, therefore the Mosaic Civil Code and its penology must continue today, uh, they would turn to places like Romans 13 that teaches us, rightly so, of course, that the civil magistrate is a minister of God to punish the wicked and reward the good. And then the question is, well, how can the civil magistrate be a minister of God to punish the wicked and praise the good unless he's using specifically the civil code that was given to the commonwealth of Israel. And he gave an example that I failed to mention last time, which is someone in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I mean, I mentioned it, but not uh, to make this particular point, that uh, I think, as he said, they were practicing uh, buggery uh, on a turkey. I would ask the question to you. Do you think you need a specific law written down that tells you not to practice sodomy on a turkey? I would say, I hope not. Is this not, uh, are we not able to ascertain that truth from the common equity, from the general equity of the moral law? We are, as a matter of fact. How could the civil magistrate possibly punish the wicked without establishing establishing a a neo-Mosaic theocratic penology? Again, if it was just then, it's got to be just now. Is anything less than that punishment? Uh, just? Is anything more than that punishment? Just? Let me ask you, do you remember Cain? Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on earth. Now, this is one of many examples where I can give you where apparently the civil code given to the commonwealth of Israel is not the plumb line of civic righteousness. It's not the abiding standard of justice that the moral law is. Did the moral law exist when Cain killed his brother? Obviously, it did. Murder was a sin before God pinned it with his own finger and tablets of stone. Genesis asks, before the Mosaic covenant, will the judge of the earth not do right? By what standard? By his moral standards, he would do right. But God let Cain go. So how can the civil code and its penology be intrinsically tied to the nature of God like the moral law is? And the answer, it's not. And we see it in Ananias and Sapphira when God struck them dead. Was lying contrary to the civil code, at least about tithes that were offered? No, it certainly wasn't. You see, as Calvin would explain in Institutes of the Christian Religion, chapter 2, verse 11, the covenants between works and grace are the same in substance but different in administration. See, the truth is, administratively, God has a different way of handing down punishments that are in accordance to the freedom of his own sovereign will and purpose for that particular place, person, and yes, even culture. And we see that in Scripture. And I already pointed out to you, but I'll do it again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We've got to ask the question, how did they use the civil code? Can my opponent find an example in the New Testament of the civil code being applied to the magistrate and not to Israel, who is now the church? Can he do that? No. Paul references the civil code and encourages the church to follow this. This is how we are to use it. Uh, Rather, this is an instruction from Paul to Israel, spiritualizing it, using it in a way that he himself said was to train us in godliness, as he said to young Pastor Timothy. Keep in mind, when Paul called the Roman government 
when he called them uh, a, uh, a government that was a minister of God, he said it to a government that did not enforce the Mosaic penalties or the civil code of Israel. Now, simple deduction would therefore tell you, and by the way, I, I hope I don't offend anyone by asking you to think. I think it was page 7 or maybe 11 of Joel's book on biblical logic uh, when he said that Arist- God did not make man two-legged and leave it up to Aristotle to make them reason. Reason with me here. The question is, if God changes for himself punishments that he hands down, but he never violates his moral law because it's intrinsically tied to who he is, then how can it be the same thing? It's not immutable, and we never see the civil code used for the civil magistrate in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, Gentiles do not have the law. What's for all nations? Gentiles don't have the law. Romans 9 tells us the same thing. Paul feels sorry for them because they weren't given uh, the law. But when they, by nature, do what law requires, this is what God has written on our hearts. Now, the selling point uh, for theonomy most of the time, and I feel it's false advertising, is that theonomy provides simple, clear answers uh, for our contemporary world and our government. Simple solutions. And to that I say it most certainly does not. It most certainly does not. Which of the civil codes would have to be stretched, skewed, twisted, contorted, and, and expanded to cover, as I mentioned before, identity theft? Now, of course, the moral law prevents stealing, doesn't it? Sure it does. Uh, but my uh, opponent said on the American Vision website, April 7, 2014, that there are sins, but they're not necessarily crimes. Scripturally speaking, crime is a subset of sin that carries the additional civil punishment that sin alone does not. So then I would ask, where is the civil code that deals exhaustively with identity theft and wherein lies its penalty? Are we not told not to add jot or tittle to the law? And yet they would have to to cover that offense. Would pornography be outlawed in the coming theonomic kingdom? There's no penalty for it. What about child pornography? Sure, we can find places in Deuteronomy 25, 25 through 7 that I think we would call it rape, and that would be obviously a, uh, a capital offense. But what about viewing it, owning it, disseminating uh, it? What, I mean, listen, we can't add to the law, right? Where's the civil penalty for intentionally taking your own child's life? Gary North said in his letter to the abortion, uh, abortionist assassin Paul Jennings Hill that the civil code, there is no civil code outlawing abortion. Where would the civil penalty be for that? Well, the Bible says thou shalt not murder. But listen to what Joel says. Just because it's a sin doesn't mean it's a crime to be punished unless specifically there is a penalty given for it in the civil code. Now, any good theonomist would have answers to these questions and they would explain in full detail, I'm sure, how all of these things could work just right and package it together for you, but they would have to abandon the theonomic assumption that you don't add to or take away from the law itself. It simply can't be done unless they abandon their theonomic suppositions and adopt a biblical worldview applying the moral equity of God's law to the laws of our land. Now, Rush Dooney impugns so-called antinomians, which would include me, Uh, He says that that cannot be called Christian. Institutes of Biblical Law, page 709. Gary North says the same thing in Sinai Strategy, page 21. He says, those who proclaim a law order alien to the one set forth in the Bible are proclaiming some other God. 
Well, that's all well and good until you consider that we're, at least I am an idolater and a proselytizer of a false god. And the problem is Leviticus chapter 13, verse 2 through 9 says that's a capital offense. Will we be put to death in the coming neo-Mosaic theocracy? If the Theonomic Fathers were right in their characterization of the historic and orthodox position, and if they're to uphold the law in exhaustive detail, any explanation that would not lead in my death would be a test case in cognitive dissonance and contradiction. What about Baptists? Would I be able to stay? No. North writes in Political Polytheism, page 87, those who refuse to submit publicly to the eternal sanctions of God by submitting to his church's public marks of covenant baptism and holy communion must be denied citizenship just as they were in ancient Israel. No fear. You won't be executed, Baptist. You'll just be denied citizenship. How far we've come from understanding that there is a new covenant that is now mediated by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 not by Moses. It makes the first one obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Whereby we enter with faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Not by works. Now this is in contrast to the theonomic assumption that what makes a nation Christian, hear me out now, we need a Christian nation. What makes the nation Christian? Trying to follow Mosaic law. What if I said to you, brothers, this man is a Christian. How do you know he's a Christian? He tries to follow Mosaic law. Everyone in this room would say, God forbid, that's not what a Christian is. A Christian, we don't become righteous and justified like Bonson said. Our righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, like Bonson said, because we're striving to obey the Mosaic law, but it's because we've been imputed with the righteousness achieved by Christ and his following of the law for us. Why are we calling a Christian nation not one that is regenerate, but one that follows God's laws? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It is a reference when Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. Is he speaking of the commonwealth? Is he speaking of a body politic? Who's the Christian nation? Who's the Christian nation? He's quoting in eight different times. In Deuteronomy, the verse, the, the, uh, that phrase being used in reference to Israel. But he's using it now in reference to the church. It's not a geopolitical unit or a civil government. And yet this confusion of the covenants of works and law are expressed in the father of theonomy, R.J. Rushduni's assertion, that, get this, guys, I want you to see what it leads to. I, I'm not here for my health. I'm here because I see people, as Calvin said, be led astray by this notion. Rushduni said, he said, it is the church that is, quote, left to civilly atone for Adam's sin. Friends, that's heresy. Gary North, who took the covenant of grace and shattered it into a thousand pieces, said, quote, evangelism was teaching people to obey God's law. Publishers Ford and Kenneth Gentry's The Greatness of the Great Commission. Evangel, good news. That's what evangelism is. It's to share the good news. And the evangel in evangelism is not, here's good news, follow the law. That's a distraction from what the gospel is, but this is what it leads to. Again, Rush Dooney said this in Institutes of Biblical Law, page 463. Salvation is inseparable from restitution. And man must pay restitution for the sins of Adam 
by taking dominion over the earth. My friends, I tell you this, I serve and love a Savior who paid my restitution for me. This isn't theonomy. This is a term I'm going to trademark. Not really, but here it is, hyponymy. What I've just shared with you is what it means to be under the law. It's under the law. It's not to love God's law. It's not God's law in general. It's confusing law and gospel. And the entire notion, I know we're debating theonomy tonight, but the entire notion behind dominionism is that if you do right as a culture, God will bless you. Culturally, it is the same prosperity gospel for a culture that the charismatics preach to the individual. My friends, as a culture, as a people, as a church, as a person, our blessings are tied up in what Jesus Christ has done for us. His accomplishment of the law for us. Rush Dooney, and I'll get the quote in a moment, Lord willing. Forgot to bring it down here with me. Teaches that what the new covenant does is give us grace that allows us to become covenant keepers. That's the Catholic notion of grace, friends. Grace allows us to follow God's law. If there's a line in heaven and on judgment day that says covenant breaker, I'm in that line. I'm a covenant breaker, and so are you. This is how it clouds your judgment. Theonomists calling themselves, I'm a covenant keeper, and I would ask you, covenant keeper, by whose standard? Not God's standard. Not God's standard. Rush Dooney says sanctification is by the law. I'm glad he had justification right, at least verbally. Sanctification is by the Spirit of God. It is well a work of God done through man, but indeed a work of God. Thank you. Thank you, J.D. Hall. You guys are doing really good keeping time. This is like one of the best debates I've seen. These guys are hitting it every time. Joel McDermott, 15-minute opening statement, part of segment two. You have 15 minutes, and the floor is yours. In the first half of this debate, I thought, wow, this is, this is going... Uh, well, of course, as, as you all listened to me talk the other day, or uh, this morning, I said, look, one of two things is going to happen in this debate. The same J.D. Hall that critiqued us in his podcast is going to show up with all of the boogeyman quotes. And how do we deal with those? And I'm going to be able to expose them as fallacies. Well, of course, if you have 5,000 of those thrown at you at one time, it's a little difficult to do that. I'll get to that in just a minute. But in the first half of this debate, I thought the other side of that was going to show up, and J.D. was going to show up and, and give a, a real biblical argument and refutation based on this. And actually, as far as debating about the historicity of the confessions and the meaning of them, that happened. And I consider that a victory, because when a man has sat down and read what we actually have written for 40 years, and you change your tone from these overt boogeyman quotes that are pulled out of context and twisted to someone who really wants to engage the substance on his theological and historical level, that's a victory. You may still disagree with you at the end of the day, but it's a whole different discussion. But unfortunately, the second half of the debate has gone back to what I hoped wouldn't happen, and that is the boogeyman quotes. Well. I'm not going to, I am not prepared to answer all of those by any means, and there's no way I could have been, but I will tell you this much. 
I do know one of the books that J.D. Hall read early on as he was trying to understand theonomy after he had critiqued it. And it was, it's a book written by a neo-Orthodox liberal who hates theonomy worse than anybody you've ever met in your life and wrote the worst smear job I've ever seen. And what I did was I took his chapter on rush duty, I sat down and I took out every one of his claims, I went back to the institutes, read the context, and in some cases it's at 180 degrees opposite of what he was claiming rush duty was said. So when you hear quotes like rush duty says sanctification is by the law, well he did write that fragment of a sentence, but it's in a certain context, and if you go read it, you'll understand he's not saying you are sanctified by works. And the same with virtually everything else, that this line that Gary North is spouting heresy because he says evangelism means preaching the law. Well, just like Jordan said, that's in the beginning of a book titled The Greatness of the Great Commission. And all Gary is saying is if you read The Great Commission, it says... Go there, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then pray a lot. No. Teach them everything I have commanded you. So part of the Great Commission is teaching the law. And if you actually, actually, if he was really honest with you, he would have told you the sentence before that where, G, where Gary says, in fact, I think it's the same sentence with just a comma, where Gary says, having converted them, then we teach them the law. Heresy? How many in this room think that's heresy? No, it's not heresy. You know why? Because you just got the context. And I've got 26 pages of here of those kinds of claims that I have documented. You can download it from American Vision's website at AmericanVision.org forward slash GGC. That's it. And that's just a smidgen of the claims that are used against us in that fashion. It's disingenuous. It's, it's terrible that after 40 years, that's still how we get treated. And they'll accuse us, well, you're not being clear. When Bonson comes back and writes the preface that I read to you last night and today, anticipating all of this type of nonsense, saying that these claims are bogus, here's in the, institute, or here's in the uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics where I said just the opposite of what they're saying I said, here's why I qualified what I said, go read it for yourself. It's right there in the preface. All you've got to do is read the preface to the second edition. And when I asked J.D. Hall in cross-examination, what happens if I tell you that he himself said that's not what he meant? He would say, I wouldn't believe him. You heard it out of his own mouth. In other words, you're a liar. And I know what you wrote better than Bronson knows what he wrote. And on, on the Dividing Line podcast yesterday, J.D. said that he thought Bronson was a genius. So if he understands Bronson better than Bronson does, he must be a super genius. Come on. This is not fair argumentation. And it's not indicative of someone who really absorbed and is practicing my book, Biblical Logic, when you're, when you're engaging in those type of truncation fallacies. My goodness, look at all of the things I have to respond to. I, I can tell you right now there will be a, a small booklet come out of this. If God changes punishments, but he doesn't change his moral law, how in the world can they be the same thing? Well, if you really took the time to understand the distinction of men like Perkins and others who argued that, yes, there are some judicial laws that change, 
But there are some judicial laws that are merely expressions and extensions of the moral law which don't change. And that's how they stay the same. It's funny, in cross-examination, I said, have you, have you, are you familiar with the writings of William Perkins? No. And then he gets up here and quotes to you William Perkins in his notes. Does it really sound like somebody who's actually studied through William Perkins' distinctions? Or somebody who's trying to find a quote that he can use to uh, ref refute what I'm talking about? And I would say that if you really understood Perkins, you would understand the difference between common equity and particular equity, and you would understand that the common equity is not spiritualizing the law so that we can use it in Christian personal ethics in certain ways. It's not merely talking about common sense that's written on our hearts. It is talking about that part of the moral law that is written that continues today and applies to all nations in all times. One of the things was that, that came up was, well, hey, this is going to be tough. Theonomists, uh, this is false advertisement. Theonomists say, like, we got all these simple solutions. How many of you were here yesterday when I read Bonson telling you just the opposite? In the preface to his book. You heard it. Bonson saying, look, this is not about the particulars of the law. I know it's going to be difficult to tease all of that out. We know there's tons of work ahead of us. But this is about the general applicability of the law. We'll take care of the details once this is established. So I don't think we're guilty of false advertisement. I think someone else is guilty of not reading very closely. Well, yes, there's going to be tough questions. Bonson said that before you did. Maybe you subconsciously got it from Bonson when you read him. Yes, there are tough questions. No theonomist has ever said that jot and tittle means you can only apply what is written in the Old Testament and nothing else, and that you cannot extrapolate the moral principle to modern situations. In fact, you heard me this morning and yesterday read Bonson where he said just the opposite. Now, of course, J.D. doesn't believe him that he really believes that, but Bonson did say it. And that bothers me that that can't be acknowledged. What about if you stole my car? I would want the car back plus 20%, just according to biblical law. That doesn't mean you have to chop a fifth of a car off and give it to me. That means you have to pay me money for the loss of the time, the interest, etc., whatever that is accepted to cover. But that's, there's nothing that says you can't extrapolate that and apply the general principle there to modern times. That's exactly what theonomy is talking about. We hear about Calvin again. Allegedly, Calvin uh, is, is, is uh, telling us what general equity really means. It means all that really matters is thievery gets punished. That's what Calvin actually uses that example. He said the biblical model is restitution. In some nations, the model is double restitution. In some nations, the punishment's death. And he says, but see there, that's the general equity. That's the beauty of it. All, as long as it gets punished, it's okay. Calvin says that. But Calvin knows he's not being consistent with himself because he comes back later and says, but those harsh and barbarous laws in some countries I don't even consider to be laws. Well, let me ask you a question, Calvin. Brother, by what standard do you consider that a law or not? 
J.D. is still considering that the fact that the, the, the moral law is written on stone and placed in the ark and that it has a very special place in God's, uh, um, uh, of, uh, God's ethics for us and that everything else apparently doesn't measure up to that in some way, shape, or form. Problem. When the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest of the commandments, he didn't quote from those two tablets. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he also quoted from Leviticus. <gasps> chapter 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Neither one of those were written on those two tablets. Both of those were written in the books that were not on those tablets. And yet Jesus said they were the greatest of the law. And then he went on to say that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. Okay. So let me ask Jordan. Which one of those civil penalty is not an expression of love? Socially speaking. Because Jesus said... All the law hangs on those two commandments. Paul says that if you fulfill those two commandments, you fulfill the entirety of the law. The question is, how do you know what love is? Obviously, you go back and you look in those instances. J.D.'s worried if a Baptist can make it into a, a, a mosaic, neo-mosaic theonomy, as he terms it. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we should let some of them in and maybe not others. But then again, it's not my choice, is it? Now, there are some covenanters who are far more extreme than Reconstructionist theonomists in, in my tradition who would actually say, no, you would, you would lose your citizenship. But if, if Gary North says we would not allow citizenship to anyone who denied the covenant marks, why would that exclude a Baptist? Baptist not been baptized? Then they're not a Baptist. So I don't see why that's a problem. Obviously, this, and this is another one of those areas, there are a lot of questions to work through. Theonomists have never pretended that we have answered every possible question and every possible extrapolation of any of these laws. What we want is for people to get on board with the general concept and help us to start thinking through them. But instead, they soundbite us and ridicule us and want to trash us in public. Well, that doesn't help anything. What it does help to do is to keep God's morals out of the public square. Hyponymy. The theonomy is teaching that we're under the law. Again, that's all tied to the boogeyman quotes, all the association with the dominion movement, boogeyman quotes. It's all essentially uh, nonsense. J.D. again calls out... Uh, particular page in Theonomy and Christian Ethics and says, where Bonson says there's no cancellation of death sentences. Again, this is one of those areas, if you go back and read, there are qualifications on these types of things. And Bonson says, again, this is a general concept. We're not working through details yet. But instead of arguing that point from Scripture or even from the context and qualifications that Bonson gives, J.D. says, well, a bunch of theonomists I know treat it this way. Well, guess what? 
people make mistakes. There are young men who are eager and zealous. Uh, when you're arguing on Facebook, you're hardly meeting the standards of a theological journal. <laughs> and, and so I'm not surprised at that. And I, and I share J.D.'s concern over the fact that some young men get gung-ho before they've learned a lot. And if they understand the fact that we've only had one generation of people sit down and try to write commentaries on these issues. There are going to be some disagreements. It's to be expected, as I said yesterday. There are going to be some difficult questions. Absolutely. But where are the people that understand the general concept that if, that there is, that, that, uh, that the law is continuing and abiding, and let us take it seriously as a standard for the public realm? Because Paul says it applies to unbelievers. And Paul is quoting from that, uh, that law. And the fact that Paul did that elsewhere and didn't attach the sanctions to it does not mean he didn't mean the sanctions applied. If, if uh, J.D. had read biblical logic, he would have realized, hey, that's an argument from silence. Time's up. Thank you, Joel. What am I here for? The speaker says, time's up. What do you need me for, huh? All right, cross-examination. I'll let you guys get your notes ready. You uh, already know the rules about being nice. And uh, keep it uh, short, clear, to the point, so we can allow the questioner to ask as many questions as, as they can. You guys did a pretty good job at that last time. And let's continue with that. So cross-examination, J.D. Hall, you have seven minutes to ask Joel McDermott some questions. Joel, your position is best I understand it, and interrupt me only if I'm wrong here, but that the civil code, assuming you're affirmative in this debate and you agree with the resolution you're trying to promote, those laws are obligatory for today. That's correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and therefore, we'll be judged for not following the civil codes given to the Commonwealth of Israel. Is that right? When you say we will be judged, in what? You mean uh, a culture or as a nation? As, as, as a culture. Sure, as a culture. I would say yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, can you think of an example in the scripture where a nation is judged specifically for a violation of one of these civil codes, a part of the civil ordinance? Well, since I don't separate that civil ordinance from the moral law in the same way that you do, I don't see that that's necessary, but no, I mean, God, there's nowhere God says, um, you guys have committed kidnapping and therefore I'm going to judge you or impose this, this penalty upon you. We see more general applications, for example, the Canaanites, where God says, don't do as they do, for they have violated all of these laws that I'm giving you, which I assume would include the judicial precepts. Right. So, but um, you can't think of, you know, explicitly where a nation came under judgment for violating part of the, the civic code given to Israel. Uh, the short answer is no. But okay. what I would add to that is okay. simply... All right, that's fine. I have, I have my answer. Thank you. We see Daniel. Right. We see Daniel. I mean, I, would, I was going to qualify that. So you that might have fallen into the rules of debate. Yeah, go ahead, Joel. So the qualification is simply that if a nation gets to the point where God's going to judge them as a nation, it's usually not because of an infraction of a single uh, precept. Uh, for example, you know, but it God could be in theory, entire, right? Like God doesn't, I mean, God will punish it sin. It doesn't have to, the, the, the balance on the scales doesn't have to tip. Couldn't he theoretically punish a nation for uh, violating or ignoring one part of the civil code given to the nation of Israel? Sure. And, but you can't think of an example in all of the canon of scripture where, where that's no. happening. 
That's, okay. It's not said that way, certainly. Right. So uh, let's look to uh, Daniel, for example. Okay. Daniel is, uh, is high up in, in the Babylonian government. Um, did Daniel, who is a man of God, I think we could both agree, right? Um, did Daniel implement the civil code of Israel over the nation of Babylon, or did he attempt to? I don't know if he attempted to or not. We're not told. But no, he did not. Okay. Um, we see Osiris, who wants the people to return to rebuild the temple, reestablish, uh, reestablish the system that was in place in Israel. Um, did he attempt, as godly as he was, I mean, he's called a servant of God anyway, uh, did he try to establish the laws and the system of worship and all of that uh, in his own nation, or was he concerned about implementing that specifically in the commonwealth of Israel? I don't know what he imposed in his commonwealth. Okay, that's a fair answer. Yeah. Can you think I mean, of an example? Do we have any historical evidence of the laws of the ancient Persians? Right. Can we think of an example uh, of the civil code being discussed in the New Testament, applied to the civil magistrate, and not applied to the church? No, and I would consider that an argument from silence. Um, I, I think it's interesting, um, one of the things that I, I uh, see here, Joel, as you mentioned that fallacy argument of si from silence, wouldn't you make the point that because there's no place that we're told these laws are specifically abrogated, sure. that that would be an, uh, an argument from silence? It would be an argument from established precedent. And so, yes, as far as the New Testament itself goes, it could be an argument from silence, but the difference is the laws were established, the, this, this precepts of justice that are altogether righteous have been revealed, and we have no reason to think they've been abrogated. Right, other than Jesus having come, right? No, not even because of Jesus having come. Okay. Um, is it your understanding theonomy goes back to the apostles or goes back to... The Puritans or Kuiper, where would you say we see historically these people got it and taught it? You mean you, you want a historical example since the New Testament where theonomy has been perfectly Is it an old thing? Is it an old thing or a new thing? I would say it's a combination of both. Okay. Could you explain that as time is fleeting? How is it? Well, I mean, it's not hard. I mean, if the civil precepts abide then we are obligated to enforce them. Yeah. And I don't mean the whether, principles no, in the scripture. I mean a whether culture anybody's or a actually done that well or not is an historical argument, and they're at fault for not doing right. it. But it's so, something that's older, that you, I mean, you would say, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, Gary North, who I think you know, by the way, uh, said in Backward, Backward Christian Soldiers, page 267, theonomy is, quote, a recently articulated philosophy it is unquestionably new, a major break in church history, a theological revolution. Would you disagree with that? 